So, good evening, everyone. I know it's been a full day today. (laughs) A lot of ups and downs, probably. (laughs) Intense moments. It's funny, at the end of retreats, I always want to have some kind of celebration, actually. I keep kind of pushing for that. Because, you know, in different traditions, when, say, a, a person went out into the woods or went on a vision quest of some kind and then they stayed for many days and and then the whole community would be waiting for them when they returned with food and music. I keep thinking we need to have like a fire pit or some kind of like, I don't know, indigenous thing for people at the end of these retreats, you know. But alas, you know, we have these Dharma talks, which are nice. <laughs> um, and very good, you know. Um, but we will try to do something a little special tomorrow. Uh, that'll be our, our way of, uh, you know, the ending of, of this period and this time. And so I think as we start to transition out of retreat mode, there's always two groups of people, those that really want to stay, right? Really want to stay. And those that are really ready to go, right? <laughs> this was great. I did it. Can't wait to get home you know, or get back in my life. And um, I just want to honor both sides of both, both sets of feelings, you know, and, and this wanting to stay or wanting to go, there's usually always some kind of fear or trepidation about going home. And so I was reflecting on this. I wanted to kind of talk about this tonight, this, um, what this could be about and how to integrate these teachings and how to weave the teachings of the Eightfold Path into our lives in a, in a different way. Um, some of you might be familiar with these teachings, these eight sort of links, you could say. They're on the prayer wheel as you walk in. You may have spun it many times by now, right? And there's prayers in there. They keep putting more in. And actually just had it painted. It's redone, the prayer wheel. So yeah. It's a psychedelic orange now at the bottom. Um, but I want to talk about these from a different way because I want to talk about it as how we actually live this. Oftentimes we hear talks about the, the noble eightfold path and it can seem very lofty, even confusing. Uh, we wonder, how does this really apply? How does this really look in my life? And I'm, I think that for me as a Dharma teacher, um, I'm always looking to translate the Dharma into now. How do these teachings show up now? How do we live this truth? Right? Not just think about the truth. Like, hmm, that's good. You know, that's one aspect is thinking about it. But how do I live it? How do I, how do, I do that? And how does it apply to us as Westerners? Right? Rather, you're from, you know, you grew up here. You live here now. We have a certain psyche, a certain mind stream. It's different than people that grow up in other parts of the world. You know, it's just, it's just different if you grow up in a traditional Buddhist country. Um, let me make that distinction um, in some way. We have our own habits of mind. We have our own suffering, you know, that's unique, I think, on some level. You know, each culture has that or each kind of group of people. And we're not monastics here. This is another big distinction. We are not monks and nuns, right? Most of us are living a full life, full job, have marriage, partner, children, you know. Uh, This is also unique. So how do we apply the Dharma to this place and time? 
I'm always so interested in that, you know, and, and how I've heard things and then how I live it. And how do I, again, this word, I always like to use this word, translate that into our life um, so that it becomes more than just a nice teaching at the end of the retreat. Like, oh, that was really great. Okay, you know, with the rest of all the, you know, great talks we've heard somewhere, you know, in the back of the mind. But how do we actually take it and move forward? I'm very interested in this. And I think one of the fears that I had whenever I used to leave retreat, it's far less now, almost no fear really going home to my life. There's always a little bit of bump. But even if I go on retreats, last year I went on a five-month retreat, and then it was kind of, I integrated into my life somewhat seamlessly, believe it or not. Um, But I know that early on, or even sometimes, even if you practice for 20 years, you've done so many retreats, there can be this fear. And I think one of the issues that I've seen is that there's a very strong tendency in our community to compartmentalize our life. Retreat is retreat, right? And we're one person on retreat, right? And we have our whole like retreat world. And then when we go home, it's radically different, right? And maybe we have a very intense job or maybe we have a partner that's there's a struggle or abusive relationships or some other dynamics, addiction, or we have this other life that seems very different from this. And we come here and it's like, ah, we tap into this one lifestyle, right? And then we go home and there's no, it's not seamless. And I think that that's the transformation that does happen over many years when you're really dedicated is there's a seamlessness that starts to permeate every area of your life. And in order to really live this practice, there can be no part really left out. You know, it goes everywhere. We have to live it, right? And, and, and the parts that maybe are a bit more shadowy or murky or confused or parts of our life where we show up aggressive or, 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 or we're not in harmony in some way with this kind of energy that we have on retreat, it starts to create uh, a lot of suffering, actually. Or a word that I use a lot is it creates a plateau, right? Until we sort of address some, some area, we, we, we can get stuck. And I'm always using the word plateau. And, you know, as I taught the meta, I said, you know, we get capsized, you know. And in, in reality, there is no such thing as a plateau. You know, we're all going. But I'm really interested in, in this effect of when we, there's these long pauses, you know. And we're not always sure what's happening, let me give you an example of this. Um, and then I'll move into kind of sharing more about the Eightfold Path from my own perspective. I once um, did a long retreat on the East Coast uh, at the retreat center, the Forest Refuge. And we, I sat, and Pascal was on that retreat too, actually, and several other teachers. Uh, we, I was doing a period of long practice, but for a month and a half period, there was this kind of fierce Burmese Saidao name, Saidao Upandita. Sort of just the name gives me a little chill, you know, it's like Upan. <laughs> I don't know, he's still going full on, and I think he's 91, 92, uh, I don't know. He has been, you'll hear legendary stories, or remember all the senior teachers. I mean, he's been around that long, right? He's their teachers, and then, so I was like, okay, great, I'll go do this retreat with, you know, Saidao Upandita, and He's known to humiliate people and, throw, you know, like, his very radical uh, way of, you know, 
it's a way I think he wants to break your ego into pieces before the end of any retreat. He'll go about it like subtlety sometimes, but then straight on, you know. You know so that really wasn't the story. What was I was interested in actually ended up having a good retreat. You know, we don't operate like that at Spear Rock, as you see, you know, we're very much more, you know. But um, there was another woman on the retreat, and I had talked to her at the end of the retreat. And um, she, in that style of retreat, we had to, you know, practice many, many hours a day. There was no hanging out or long walks anywhere. It was sit, walk, sit, walk, hour after hour after hour. And we had interviews every day where we had to write down every little detail about our meditation or our best meditation. And if it wasn't very good, he would just kind of ring the bell and go, go pay attention, right? (laughs) Like, you're not be more mindful or something. All those kind of funny stories. So there was a woman on the retreat who had been very practicing many years, actually. Uh, she was a lot older than me. Uh, she was probably in her late 60s, maybe even, yeah, probably late 60s now. And she um, said that she had a real big wake up. And I said, why? You know, she had been practicing for many years. And she said, I was giving the same report day after day after day. You know, it was a month and a half retreat. And she said, after a month, uh, during a meeting, the Sayadaw looked at her and translated, and she heard the word sila in it. And because she had asked, why, why, what's going on? You know, nothing's moving forward. I feel stuck. I'm stuck. You know, she, she reported that. And he translated it through the translator. He said, she needs to check her sila. Sila is a Pali word for ethical conduct. And at first she was infuriated, right? Like, sila, you know, like, oh, I, have, I have more, what do you mean? You know, and she, you can't really respond to him, you just leave, right? And so, so there's no dialogue, it's a one-way interview, right? And so she, she left. And then she was on the way out the door and she was like, God, you know, how could he insult me like that? I mean, what kind of person is this? This is no real teacher. My ethical conduct, ethical. And then suddenly it came to her. She had spent many years as an antique dealer and um, selling, selling, buying and selling, buying and selling and was quite good at it, you know. And she started to recollect all various moments where greed or somebody would say, how much is that? And then there would be this movement, right? And a lot of movements like that, right? And she started to see, reflect deeper on what he might've been talking about. Like she started to see these aspects of herself that were unconscious, right? And I think it was something, a really radical purification for her to go through and to let go. And that's a, that's, you know, in some ways that's a small thing, but I just wanted to share that because everything that we do affects everything else. I used to think that I would go on retreat and then I would be such an, I would act like a perfect nun, right? And then I'd go back into my life and almost as soon as I'd be leaving the retreat, I'd be like, yay, I don't have to be mindful anymore, you know? And I would sort of, I don't know, act out in ways that were harming myself. And then I would wonder, I would be like, oh, well, why isn't this going anywhere? The Dharma doesn't really work. Or, you know, I start having these doubts. Or I call my teachers. I want to have long conversations. They're like, well, what did you do all day yesterday? And I'd be like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll call you later. You know, let me think about this. I had a big 
sense of compartmentalizing my life. This little part doesn't go with this. Here I'm the Dharma person at home. You know, it was chaos, right? And I sort of didn't see how this all linked up together. And in some way, I wanted to just mention that because for us to, I mean, what we're talking about here is awakening. We want to awaken. So we have to be willing to hold the microscope to every area of our life. We can't go, oh, this part... But no, not this whole area. We'll just save that one, right? It doesn't really work like that, right? It, when you come on retreat, at least when I come on retreat, I notice that the areas that I suffer, where I'm suffering, there's like a magnifying glass held up there. And it'll keep reflecting that until we go, how is this? How am I creating this? How is this happening? Why is this painful, right? And, and then we have to see ourselves. We have to see what's the cause of that in some way. So the Eightfold Path I like because it's a whole path unto itself. It's the way the Buddha described as the path to ending suffering. It's the way to freedom, right? It's, this, it's, this, it's a teaching is laid out and it includes ethical and mental development And together with the Four Noble Truths, you could say this is the heart of the path, right? And the Buddha in some way was so clear, you know, he would make these lists. And I'm sure you heard, I mean, all of us have, you know, three characteristics, the Four Noble Truths, the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, the Ten Power, I mean, it can go on and on, right? And now I'm going to talk about the Eightfold Path, right? This other list. But in some way, it's not a linear list. I'm going to talk about these eight pieces, but how they weave together. It's a circle. And everything plays into everything else. Everything is connected. And I think that's something we have to understand about our lives. Every part of our lives is interconnected. Right? If we have one part of our lives where we're showing up one way, and then we come to the meditation cushion, that's going to affect that aspect. That's going to affect every moment of our retreat, everything we did the, you know, months before we arrived on retreat, we, we probably, you probably processed that, right? Almost this conversation and that and letting go, or if there was a trauma that happened or there was a fight or a work situation, all this is up in the mind. All of this we sort through. So these aspects of the path are in relationship to each other. And I think in some way at the heart of this Eightfold Path is this continual looking back at ourselves, right? What's happening in our heart and mind? What's happening in our mind? Because the tendency always is to look out. The tendency is always out, out, out in some way. I like this Hopi creation story. It kind of speaks to that. The Creator gathered all of creation and said, I want to hide something from the humans until they are ready for it. It is the realization that they create their own reality. The eagle said, give it to me, I'll take it to the moon. The creator said, no, one day they'll go there and find it. The salmon said, I will bury it at the bottoms of the ocean. The creator said, no, they will go there too. The buffalo said, I will bury it out on the great plains. The creator said, they will cut it to the skin of the earth and find it even there. Grandmother Mole, who lives in the breast of Mother Earth and who has no physical eyes, 
but seized with spiritual eyes, said, put it inside of them. And the creator said, it is done. (laughs) (laughs) And so that starts the wheel of looking, right? We begin looking, looking everywhere, looking. We've been looking for love, looking for value, looking for happiness, ultimately. Ultimately, that's the real message with the Dharma. It's not always about suffering. It's about how to become happy, right? We talk about where we're stuck in the hopes of freeing that, right? We look at the tangle to untangle it, not just for suffering's sake, you know, we don't just sit here and, and do this. We, we have to see, I think we have to be willing to be fearless in the Dharma. You have to be willing to get very close to pain, I've seen this in myself, excruciating periods of retreat where I got very close to this knot of something. Like, what is this? Very close to the clinging, very close to looking. What is causing this? Right? What is this tangle? What is at the root of it? And so when we think about the Noble Eightfold Path, it can provide a support system and a way of approaching our lives to integrate our lives. And in some way, it takes some kind of commitment as you sit here to think about your life as, and we're inventing new terms, like what are we? Are we lay semi-monastics while we're here? You know, we take all these vows. We do, you know, we're in a unique category, right? We're sort of comfortable in our lifestyle, you know? We're not, you know so it's like, this is an interesting period of time, right? How do we view ourselves? Do we view ourselves as spiritual practitioners? When we kind of take a view of ourselves like that, we, we sort of dedicate, there's an inner dedication to this path. Basically an inner dedication to your own liberation. Which I think is an aspect of wise view, the first link. The Eightfold Path is divided up into three, you could say, subsections. The first two links are about wisdom, right? So you can say what wisdom is the foundation here and wise view. Uh, about three years ago, I went to some teachings with the Dalai Lama at the, it was in Washington, D.C. at the Verizon Center. It was the Kala Chakra, which is this elaborate 10-day Tibetan uh, teaching on basically what's for world peace and that's where they build those beautiful sand mandalas and then they the end they dissolve it but basically for 10 days it was prayers the mandala represents the whole world we bless it for 10 days and then dissolve it right it's sort of the universe not bigger than that so the Dalai Lama, I remember at one point was talking, he gave uh, many hours of teachings throughout the whole thing, but one day he, I don't know he was just talking and he was saying something about enlightenment is possible and then he stopped and he looked right out and he said, I hope you realize, you know, and there was me and 18,000 people in there. It was very cozy in a weird way. I feel like it was just me. <laughs> Interesting, I creates this kind of um, like little campfire feeling wherever he is, you know. He said, wait a minute, I hope you know that enlightenment is possible. If you don't believe this, you'll never get there. You have to believe this. You have to know this because if you don't, you'll never walk the path. You'll never, you'll never think it's possible for you. Right? And he sort of got ferocious for a minute. And he said it maybe five or six times, enough to where it went in somewhere in me. Like, wow, he said, if you don't believe it's possible, you won't set your sights there. 
you know if you don't know your way you won't you won't drive your car there you won't prepare for that you'll and it's not like we have to prepare in this moment but we set our sights on the sun right we navigate where we we want to go and then it's a process but we have to sort of somehow believe in it otherwise he said you you won't really do it if you don't believe in it and that was his way and i think by the end of the 10 days there was some seed some doubt was you know uh, I think eradicated or overcome in me in those days. So I think one aspect of the first link wise view is understanding that there is this possibility, there is this more than possibility, there is this truth that any human being can know. Westerner, monk, nun, black, white, gay, straight, who cares, right? Intersex, doesn't matter if you're disabled, it does, if you have a mind, right, you can awaken and i think that's something we have to hear again and again because there's a lot of archetypal language and vision of people uh you know monastics or just men or just you know we could think this is so far away this doesn't really relate to me you know i'm a i live in san diego right we can kind of go no this doesn't seem like my lifestyle or we kind of we don't connect to it you know we don't connect to it so wise view i think an aspect in my mind is getting this idea that this is the path that there has it's a well-worn path wise view also includes the understanding about suffering meaning cause and effect now you have seen after all these days of being here how some suffering is created right please raise your hand if you've seen one moment where you saw you created it and then you ended it yeah okay great this is it right like we start to see out of the emptiness is tangled and we're like wait a minute <laughs> and we let it go we're like okay this is and then you see the freedom in it right even if you see that one time that that's wise view it's like if we start to see how i can go down a path right now and go crazy or i can sit here and be happy right you actually see where and you see where you might have done it like a year before let's go to the crazy path right <laughs> you see it and and now we're like no that's pain this right here present moment drinking my tea on the land i'm awake i'm okay understanding that is everything because the more we see no thank you come back here no th- we understand that there's causes and effects we go well if i entertain this mind state it's going to lead to this we start to make we're supposed to get wise right not out of any judgment you know we're not punished for our anger we're punished by it it's a very big difference right there's no it, there's no one watching us it's all you and your mind in the end and then nobody knows what's happening but you right they can look on the outside but it's you in your own mind so this is this is important this also we understand in the wise view is also we start to understand what pascal was talking about last night the three characteristics right we start to see impermanence right we see that so we don't cling as much it's like well it's going here it goes okay goodbye once where we clung we don't anymore because we're like well this is the truth of things right so if we get fired or someone leaves us we suffer but we don't go to the depths that we used to go to right we go well this buddha says this is the nature of everything change and here's change right it's happening every moment 
also understanding how worldly objects appear and disappear. All of this plays into the, the noble truths and seeing how cause and effect. We have to plant the seed of enlightenment, right? It arises due to causes and conditions. Did you know the cause of mindfulness? Mindfulness. <laughs> One moment of mindfulness leads to another moment of mindfulness. In some way, we're going home. We're reversing the order. You know, instead of going into more states of suffering, we're like digging our way out. This is actually how I view it. This is how I experience this, how I see others experiencing it. We're, we're going against the stream, right, in some way. So this is wise view, having an understanding there is the light at the end of the tunnel. There's a reality to that. Understanding how suffering is created, right? How to let go. We start more and more to learn how to untangle quicker and quicker with compassion, with mindfulness. The second aspect of uh, the, the Noble Path in the wisdom section, the first two again being wisdom. These are the two aspects of wisdom. Wise view is also wise intention. You all have wise intention, otherwise you wouldn't be here right? It takes effort to do retreat, yeah? <laughs> right? You come, you, you uproot your life for a period of time, you move in with a hundred people you don't know, you trust the teachers, right? There's a certain, you have the intention to free yourself in some way, right? It's, this is a, a, key, a key aspect. We make a commitment. Wise view is commitment, Right? Wise intention is commitment. Wise view and wise intention go together. It's also the intention of creating, you know, beauty and transformation in our heart and mind. Like we commit to that. And I I don't think I have to say much about that because I believe you're all 100% committed to that. We're committed to to awakening on some level. We're we're committed. So the third... um, aspect of uh, the Eightfold Path, and again, this is a wheel, and you'll see how they all rotate around. They lead into the other. Once we have the view of how suffering is created, we tend to want to go in the other direction, right? Once we have the intention, leads into ethical conduct, right? Which it sounds kind of moralistic in a way. I remember when I was younger when they would say, we're going to talk about ethics. I'd be like, oh no, it's kind of felt biblical or... I always felt bad, you know, I would think of things I'd done when I was really young and, you know, little, little things. I won't go into all the personal things that happened, but I, I was kind of a juvenile delinquent at times. And so I would think, oh, you know, I would go on and on in my mind. Like, I felt like I was being preached to, and I was like, what is this? I just want to meditate. I don't want to talk about ethics. I would think these kind of thoughts, thinking again, they were separate, <laughs> Right? They're together. So the first, uh, the third aspect of the Eightfold Path is wise speech. Wise speech, we could see how our words, man, how many of you have suffered some moment of regret over something you said while you're here? Just raise your hand. Yeah, just something maybe said in delusion, something said in anger, something said, you know. Words have power. And I think that that's really what I emphasize with wise speech is our words have tremendous power. Once when I was young, I was living in Los Angeles and um, I was 
I'm from Los Angeles, and I lived in the Bay Area, back and forth between Bay Area and Southern California. But we were the UCLA had a huge gathering of um, different schools to celebrate the the Black Student Union and African American History Day, and there was all these people from different schools. They kind of came to UCLA for it's a conference and uh, sort of enrichment, and it was a whole program. And so. A lot of those students then went to kind of a fancy neighborhood uh, in Westwood. There was a movie theater, and it was a whole area where a lot of students hung out. So all of a sudden, in this one town, there was maybe 75 African-American students showed up to go to the movies and hang out, right? It was kind of like, oh, wow. It, wasn't, it would be like if seven, 75 black people came into Spirit Rock or, or like at Woodacre, just in a group, right? It was... I don't know, people felt a little, and a lot of them were athletes, so they're tall and muscular. A lot of them were, you know, they were the leaders of the different schools. Some come from all over the South, right? And um, Anyway, so everybody was having a good time. Next thing you know, they have the biggest, one of the hugest riots ever. And, you know, and it just erupted into this huge fight and it was involved other students. It was late. It was in the evening. Anyway, come to find out one word was said that word, the N word somewhere in the crowd, as this group of people was passing, this word was said and it evoked a huge, I mean, cars were turned over, vandalism, the police came, Parents had to get involved. It was a huge, not only that, it became a whole race thing. This was in Los Angeles. This was when I was 18. It was a big deal. And I remember thinking, man, everybody was so relaxed. This is a power of words, right? One word spurred an an anarchy. And I couldn't even believe it. I was thinking, one word spurred this, right? So I just talk about that. So when we think about words, also beauty Beautiful words harmonize, right? When you hear somebody speak of love or sing a certain song, or it, it helps us. We're transformed by that. So I like to emphasize that because of the power of that. You know, a lot of wars are started with rhetoric, right? And, and one of the things that bothers me the most about the United States is hate talk radio. So I feel like it spurs the underground hatred of energy. It's like, why can't these people talk about beautiful things all day? Like, why are they sitting on there just like yelling? It's, it's bizarre. And then people listen and they rile up. It's energy, right? Like, words are energy. Words are energy. So just to remember to speak with words that are harmonizing, right? That are of the truth, that are loving. It's not that we don't speak the truth. It's how we speak the truth. You know, some of the most beautiful speakers in the world have spoken the truth, even at the cost of their life. But they spoke that. It's power in that, speaking the truth, speaking wisely. Another teacher once came up to me. I was in a trip in the Amazon. I go spend a lot of time in Peru these days. I feel very attracted to that area and the people and the indigenous people there probably will end up spending more time there in the future, just concerned about the land and what's happening in that area with oil companies. But one time, this uh, very powerful indigenous elder, I don't know what possessed them, but they came up to me and they put their finger on my mouth and they said, let your words be the prayers and the mantras. Right? Let your words, and they put their finger right here, 
And I really understood that, actually. <laughs> he said some, like, he sent some power there, and he said, let every word be like prayers or mantras. Right? Don't, don't just throw your words all around. <laughs> and I remember I felt a little embarrassed and a little chastised and then deeply touched, and then I got the teaching. It was like, in the inner words, too. Right? It's not just what you say out. It's like the dialogue. So why speech is important? We know that. That leads into wise action. Right? This is the fourth link. These are the three in the ethical category. We have wisdom and then a foundation of ethics. Wise action is the precepts that we took. So you all have done this well, right? We've been here. So we don't kill, right? We try not to steal, don't on stealing. We're aware of our sexual energy. Again, why speech falls in this category again. And then our use of intoxicants. And I like to look at this, and I'm only going to say a couple of things about this. I feel like the Buddha just highlighted these areas for us. I think he saw humanity suffering and went, Hello, everyone, these five, be very careful, right? Killing, stealing, create, creates problems, right? When we're not aware of our sexual energy, my gosh, problems, right? And intoxicants, like he highlighted these areas where humans fall into these, you know, like, it's just an aspect of life, right? This is it. And he tried to highlight these, like, try to avoid these for your own happiness. (laughs) And I think that's really how I hold it now. Not as a lecture, oh God, now I have to act perfect right? Don't do this, don't do that. Right now I think, oh, my own happiness, right? Because think about it. If you're drunk and you're killing someone and stealing all their things and sexually abusing them (laughs) and maybe cursing out people and lying and then you sit on your cushion, nothing's going to (laughs) happen. All you're going to get is pain and misery. That's what you'll experience. Even when we relive something we might have done a long time ago in one of these categories, like, oh, you could see it, regret. It's like, oh, God, can't believe I did that. Can't believe I acted like that, right? So usually the last one, the intoxicants, when that one goes, the other four kind of can go quicker too. (laughs) So it's not that we say we don't drink. That's not it. It's wisdom with it. Having one glass of wine, fine. Even Dalai Lama has said, that's fine. Have one glass of wine, fine. But if that leads for you to have two bottles, then you should stop, (laughs) right? Some people, it's just one, you know, and they're like, great, you know, it's fine. It's to the point of heedlessness. This one is important, intoxication, and to the point of you have no more awareness. And we've seen people like this, right? No awareness, totally intoxicated, right? They have problems for themselves. They usually create problems. I have five little brothers, and they struggle with drinking a lot, right? And they try and try, and they they just struggle, you know, and it's the culture where they are. And um, they've all decided to give it up at some point, and they're all still in their 20s, you know? And it's like, I just tell them, I was like, you guys, when you get drunk like this, look what happens, you know? They have cuts on them. They don't know what happened. The car's impounded, you know? This is real life. This is what happens, you know, this is kind of an aspect of life. So wise action basically is living with an understanding of precepts. Like, this is for you. This is for your own well-being. This is so you could sit on your cushion and not be crying filled with regret for, you know, months at a time. 
right? This, that's for you. I love it. The bliss of blamelessness. Clear conscience, nothing like priceless in my mind now. I don't want to do anything because I know the minute I sit down, I'm just going to be like, oh, now, you know, I just don't want that feeling anymore. I just, I've had it too many times. So that leads into the third, or that leads into the fifth um, of the Eightfold Path, but it leads into the last aspect of ethical conduct. So again, the wisdom is wise view with a wise intention, ethics, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. Isn't this one interesting? How do we make our money in the world? This is a hard one for a lot of people. I've never seen more people struggle at East Bay Meditation Center with this question, our, our center in, the, in Oakland. I get more questions and more people filled with anxiety, more people wanting to meet and talk about this. Spring, I don't know how to, what's this thing about making a living? Or they're suffering where they're working, maybe in a corporate environment, don't want to work there. They work somewhere where they're, they're not sure what's, you know, it's a, it's a big topic. This is a big one. So let's just look at what you could say the Buddha laid out a few guidelines about that. Um, So he said to try to find, obviously, we want to find livelihood that helps our world. That'd be great, huh? In some way. The Dalai Lama at the same teaching, he said, okay, everyone, if you don't want to help the world, I get it. Just don't cause a lot of problems, right? Just keep that as a bare minimum, right, in your mind. I thought that was funny in a way. I was like, okay. (laughs) So wise livelihood means that one earns their living in a righteous way and that things should be gained legally and peacefully. The Buddha said these should be avoided at all costs as far as, you know, a livelihood. Dealing in weapons, you know, we could see that. My goodness, selling guns, my it's painful. Dealing in living beings, including raising animals for slaughter, slave trade, prostitution, working in the meat and production butchery business, and selling intoxicants and poisons such as alcohol and drugs. So we could kind of see that, how that would be kind of contributing, not to human beings' betterment, right? I think the idea is like, can we make money in a way that helps this planet? And for some people, that might be hard to think of. When I was young, I remember I was thinking, how can I make earn a living serving, enlightening, helping? And I think the jobs of the future haven't even been invented yet. Like when I was young, there was only like 10 meditation teachers. <laughs> I was like, how could one make a living at that, right? But that seemed like all I wanted to do was just talk about the Dharma and meditate. Like for sure, this seems impossible. But I think that there's this new birth happening and there's new things being created. And I think if one is looking, they can find that. So I think it's important just to look at how do we make money? Where, where are we doing all day? What is that supporting? Are we working somewhere that we don't really... Where is the ultimate aim? Everything is energy. Where you put your energy for 50 hours a week should be to your highest value. Is this in alignment? It's this Buddha nature, right? Is this help in some way? So why is livelihood... And then we move on to the last three, which are 
aspects of mental development, which you've been doing a lot of here. Uh, we've been cultivating all these good qualities of heart and mind. So we see wise view leads to wise intention. That leads into wise speech, wise action. Then our livelihood becomes an alignment. And then this naturally leads into the next, the mind, right? It's kind of like we have the view, we create the right ethical, like, you know, we're not doing things that are causing harms, and then the mind begins to take root, right? What's happening in the mind stream? So this is number six, is wise effort. And wise effort, I don't think I have to talk about too much because I believe that you all have this. You wouldn't be here day seven. You know, this is really hard. And wise effort is this, this kind of unwavering on the path that when we get, we get shipwrecked, that we get, we get our boat out and go again, right? We're like, okay, that was really hard. It's the, it's the, keep, it's the, the ability to keep going. You know, we keep going with it, even when we have really hard moments and we want to give up. Sometimes people have what they call a breakup with the Buddha, you know. It's like, they're mad at it, and they don't want to deal with it, you know. And then we can separate from the path for a very long time. And sometimes I'm very touched when I meet people like this, because I'll meet somebody who, um, you know, will come on retreat, and and they said, wow, I was at a retreat 20 years ago. And now I'm back. And I'll be weeping tears saying, why did I, I don't even know what the last 20 years, just misery, but I thought I knew or I wish I would have never gone away that long. Now I'm older, right? And things are harder. So this is this is kind of like wise effort is we stay with it. Even when it's brutal, right? We still have like this candle we hold of faith. That's my version of wise effort. We just keep going. We keep, we keep one step after another. We don't give up on our, our intention. Number seven. So you need that effort to work with the mind. You all seen this too clearly, right? How much effort does it take to keep coming back? Just sitting here, right? There's a part of you at some point that probably wanted to run away out of here. Who didn't at some point want to leave the retreat or had a contemplation of how to get out when maybe... <laughs> Maybe I can, you know, without looking too badly, you know, I told everyone I was going on retreat. I just can't show up back in my house, you know. <laughs> right? So sometimes pride keeps us here. You know, we have a lot of motivations for different things. That's okay. You know, whatever. The outcome is good. You know, we, keep, we stay here and we keep on looking. We keep on looking. We keep working with it. Um, so wise mindfulness. Wise mindfulness is exactly what you all have been practicing. It's all the teachings on, wise, on mindfulness that we've given. It's the four foundations of mindfulness, right? We've talked about that some. The first foundation being the body, contemplation of the body. The second being this, how are things feeling in the moment? Are they pleasant? Are they unpleasant? How's the mind reacting? The third is the emotional realm, thoughts. Right? Every day we expanded on this. You might not have noticed. Some people may have, but there was, a, there was actually a method to our madness here. Of, you know, we would expand things slowly to include aspects of these four foundations. And then the fourth foundation is kind of mindfulness of the Dharma. Like Pascal talked about this morning, the endings in the beginning. That's a pointing to mindfulness of impermanence. Right? If this was a longer retreat, we'd go farther with that. Right? 
So these four, these four foundations of mindfulness are the key. You know, they help us. And this particular retreat was focused on body because that is the root. I really feel like everything stems from there because all of these arisings are in your body. Everything else is coming out of that. So the, the ground is really beautiful and key. And also what I like to add in with that is love. Loving awareness. Wise mindfulness is imbued with love and acceptance. If we don't have the love with it, we enter into a long, epic struggle of fights. Fights with the mind, fights with the moment, fights with this thought that says, I don't want this, and I'm going to get rid of it right now, and then we get out our weapons, right? So wise mindfulness is infused with compassion. It has to be infused with compassion. Otherwise, we just, it's so difficult. So wise mindfulness leads into the last one, which is wise concentration. Wise concentration is this, what happens when everything finally begins to click into place and the mind, after it's sort of a certain amount of untangling has happened, right? Kind of the big, massive tangles we carry, right? This is little tang- littler tangles left, right? Well, then we meditate and the mind begins to focus in this most beautiful way. Suddenly, you couldn't have planned it if you wanted to, right? You sit down one day and suddenly the mind gets calm. It's not interested it's in the stories anymore. The telenovela is like, it couldn't even, it's not even, it's just going on in the background. You notice it, not even interested, right? Everything's kind of coming at you, but the mind is just still, right? It's like not interested, it's secluded, it's protected, gets focused. Beautiful states of consciousness arise in that state of samadhi, energy. These states become very healing. Concentration is something I'm very interested in for myself because I feel that the potential of the healing, but it's misunderstood a bit and even scared. People get a little scared to talk about it. But I'm so happy Spirit Rock offers a concentration retreat so that one can start to learn about the 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 beautiful aspects. For me, concentration is a huge purifier. It's as if you put a magnifying glass and then you put serious power tools by it. It's a radical purification because it's so physical and so mental and so uh, produces tremendous faith, right? These, These states of mind produce faith and help again. So that's the whole wheel. And I'm just going to say a few more things because these talks always go so quickly, so much information. I was trying not to overwhelm you with too much, but I wanted to make this Eightfold Path seem accessible. Sometimes the Dharma can seem overly complicated and then we just lose interest. We start clouding over, right? But these things are very obvious, actually. They all link together, the view, right? The intention, First two, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood fit together. And then wise mindfulness, wise effort, wise concentration. They flow in and out. Wise concentration then strengthens wise view, right? Everything strengthens the other. It's beautiful. That's why it's not linear. It's not like you have to go one, two, three, four. They all go in a beautiful circle. So again, I hope that this 
that this somehow this retreat was inspiring for you and that we can learn that we can live this in the world, that we can take this out in the world. Our world desperately is in need of Buddhas. I don't know if you know this, but we need everyone at this time, all hands on deck. That's what I'm saying in every direction. And there's an urgency for me to help people. Whatever we need to do, can we do it together so that we can free ourselves and then go about helping the next group? Right? And the more people that start to understand their own mind, right? Ending this war in, creating more love and harmony. This is really, really an aspect of the Dharma that it, it does transform. And us as people, um, we have power. We have power. Margaret Mead, I like this quote. She says, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Right? And so there's some way in which another aspect of the Eightfold Path and the final thing that I'll end on is that our whole commitment, for me, the biggest motivation to stay on this whole Dharma path through all the ups and downs has been for the benefit of all beings. Right? In some way, I, I stay in the hot seat in the fire. My practice has been brutal at times. Sometimes you get a smoother path, sometimes rough. For me, it's been choppy, storm, one storm after another, right? But in some way, it's made a commitment to, for the benefit of all beings, that we do this practice not only for ourselves, but for our world, for our families, for the planet, for... Uh, the seven generations. We do this for our great, great grandchildren. I always think about that. I say, I don't have children, but I say, this is for my great, great, great grandchildren. May they inherit a better, more beautiful place so they can practice and flourish. And we all can. The work of changing our planet happens one mind at a time, one being at a time, one somebody changes. So I'll just end really end on with uh, one of my favorite uh, inspiring pieces by uh, Christine Fry. So it's called The Great Turning. And so she says, you've asked me to tell you of the great turning. Christine Fry is a great scholar and ecologist. So she's very interested in uh, interconnectedness. So she said, you've asked me to tell you of the great turning of how we saved the world from disaster. The answer is both simple and complex. We turned. For hundreds of years, we had turned away as life on earth grew more precarious. We turned away from the homeless men on the streets, the stench from the rivers, the children orphaned in Iraq, the mothers dying of AIDS in Africa. We turned away because that's what we had been taught, to turn away from our pain, from the hurt in another's eyes from the drunken father, from the friend betrayed. Always we were told in actions louder than words to turn away, turn away. And so we became a lonely people, caught up in a world moving too quickly, too mindlessly towards its own demise, until it seemed as if there was no safe space to turn, no place inside or out that did not remind us of fear or terror, despair and loss, anger and grief. Yet on one of those days, someone did turn, 
turn to face the pain, turn to face the stranger, turn to look at the smoldering world and the hatred, seething and too many eyes. They turned to face himself, herself, and then another turned, and another, and another. And as they wept, they took each other's hands until whole groups of people were turning, young and old, gay and straight, people of all colors, all nations, all religions, turning not only to the pain and hurt, but to beauty, gratitude and love, turning to one another with forgiveness and a longing for peace in their hearts. So may we all quickly turn. That's what we're doing here. So thank you for your practice. Thank you for your attention. And we'll just sit for just one moment. Grandmother Mole, who lives in the breast of Mother Earth and who has no physical eyes but sees with spiritual eyes, said, Put it inside of them. And the Creator said, It is done. have one more last walking meditation under the stars so thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate